So we've been talking about uh, schools of interpretive thought, uh, and this is going to be important because um, it helps us understand how amillennialism is viewed and how it views revelation because it is considerably different than probably what you have understood. And you're, you have a very concerned look upon your face. <laughs> All right. Um, so... I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, and then I want to jump into millennialism. Any of you familiar with that term, millennialism? Trust me, the way you understand the millennium is the way you understand revelation. The way you understand the millennium is the way you understand what God is going to do in the end, in the end times. Millennialism. Millennium. It's the way you view the Millennium. And it's called millennialism or melanarianism. It depends on how old the book is that you're reading. All right, so we talked uh, about these schools of uh, interpretive thought. And last week we got a long way down the road and got to praetorism. Okay, so praetorism is this. So I'm just going to draw these. Praetorism, which means last. Praetor means last. So it means, uh, or um, maybe... Does it mean last? Let me look. Yeah, it means past. Sorry, I said last. It means past, which means that the timeline of the church looks like this. Um, how should I write this? Advent, first advent, incarnation. How's that? Incarnation. Second coming. Praetorism understands the timeline of end times to look like this. From the ascension to 70 AD. It is during this time period here that Revelation, between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19 is completed. Okay? Okay. Now, there has been some new thought with regards to this, and this is the fall of Jerusalem here, but many put it out here at like the 5th century when the fall of Rome, because Rome is equated as the, the harlot. So, one of these two. So, this is where praetorism understands the book of Revelation, or understands the book of Revelation to speak to this time period. Okay? That means that there's nothing here for really us. Revelation is pretty well irrelevant to the rest of the church age. And that Revelation 20 picks up here at the second coming, and then we have Revelation 20 through 22 here at the end after the second coming. Okay, that's praetorism. Yeah, Revelation 4 through 19 is understood Revelation 1 through 4, we typically just understand as being to the churches, 1 through 3, okay? And so that has its own understanding in most of these interpretations. Um, in this particular one, the churches are understood to be the primary recipients of the letter, and they go through the, the rest of Revelation, and they find recurring themes um, through the book of Revelation and point them back to the seven churches, and therefore, they say that the church, the audience was primarily the first century churches. And believe it or not, there are a lot of very, very learned men that are praetorists. Okay? All right, so that's praetorism. It's rather not something you would normally hear about in uh, evangelical circles in, the North, uh, in, in, Amer in North America. Okay? So that's praetorism. Very good. The next one is historicism, all right? And historicism, again, the timeline, incarnation. Yep. Schools of interpretive thought. Yeah, I'm just going to finish these up in about 10 minutes. Okay. Historicism. Historicism is the understanding that the visions of Revelation as a series of sequential events. 
Uh, and they are in order, well, that's what sequence means. Uh, they're in order, and they span the history of the church age. So from the ascension to the second coming, Revelation spans this time frame. However, the interesting thing about historicism is that it's sequential. It reads Revelation in a sequential order. And the other interesting thing about historicism is it tries to draw a one-on-one parallel with world events. Okay? So, for example, many of the reformers understood the, uh, the beast or the harlot to be uh, the papacy and the, and the Roman church. Okay? Um, then again, at the turn of the Second, Second World War, many believed that Hitler was the Antichrist. So, um, Jonathan Edwards, for example. How many of you know who Jonathan Edwards is? Considered the greatest American theologian ever. He was a Puritan. He believed he lived between the sixth and seventh bowl in the timeline of events. Okay? So the two things to know about historicism is that it is sequential. It reads the Bible sequentially. It, it allows for symbology um, it's not really that overly literal, but it understands and it draws a, a distinct parallel between events and symbols. Problems are what? What are the problems with historicism? Because it's considered the weakest interpretive uh, model that there is. Why? Okay, so it's chronological, it's interpretation. What does that do for us? It makes us continually try and fit revelation into current events. Okay? So we're interpreting revelation by current events, not by the Bible. And on top of that, your understanding of prophecy will continually change and morph. There is no significant standard. Okay? Okay? So a correlation between visions and events are often made without any justification from the book itself, from the Old Testament, or from history, historic, uh, historic, uh, the re- history of redemption. All right? Okay. So historicism understands everything in a sequential event. This goes to this, 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 and this. All right? And it builds upon itself. So that's historicism. This, this is not us. Okay. So, everybody got this? I'm going to erase it now. The next one is called futurism. This is what most of America is. And I would venture to say that most of us have been under the teaching of this or have some of this in the way we understand Revelation as now, right now. And that is incarnation... Oh, do it this way. Second coming. Oh, I'm sorry. Rapture. Second coming. Futurists understand that the book of Revelation is to the seven churches here. And there's the two ways that they understand this. Either it's for the first century churches specifically, or it's for the church universal through seven stages uh, of historical dispensation through the church age. And they understand it sequentially. Does that make sense? Okay, what they do is they read the seven churches as being dispensations of God's working with the church universal throughout the timeline of redemptive history. So, church one would be like something like this, then church two, then church three, then church four, then church five, then church six, and they understand it sequentially as we go down the timeline. Okay? And now, they can bleed over into one another, but that's how they understand it. They understand seven to be a a complete number that has to do with seven dispensations, because it goes back to dispensations. Uh, Yes. Okay? Which fits, actually. (laughs) Um... The bulk of Revelation, 
from Revelation chapter 4 starts here at the rapture. And the entire book of Revelation up through 19 spans this time. All right? Revelation 20 through 21 spans this time called a millennium. Right? Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, they just, uh, so that's a good question. Would I understand historicists and futurists to understand the Revelation in the same basic light? I would say yes to that with the exception of two things. One is, is that futurists condense the chronological in, uh, literal interpretation, their chronological literal interpretation of Revelation to fit into this seven-year time period. Okay? Historicists understand the book of Revelation to span the Interadvental period. Sure. Revelation four one says after these things. That's the first words of Revelation four one, and what futurists teach is that that is where the rapture took place, right at Revelation chapter four verse one. Right. And so the rest of that then is is from night there to nineteen is the. Their whole interpretation of that text. Yeah. So, Revelation 4 through Revelation 19 has to do with who? Israel. Because the church is not here. Right? Therefore, again, what are the problems? Yeah, so one of the things I didn't factor into here is called signs of the times. Now, futurists put a great deal of time, emphasis on signs of the times, and they go to Matthew 24 to do that, and, then, and also Daniel to read into Revelation. Now, that's, getting, that's very complicated, and you have to understand Dev, Daniel's 70 weeks in order to really get this. I'm not going to bog you down with that because we don't hold to that, and so there's really... Not a need, because the seven-year tribulation is Daniel's last week. Okay, so um, one of the things that futurists do is that they interpret signs of the times. And there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places and famines, and people will hate you for my name's sake. All of those in Matthew 24 are right around here. Because right? they are the precursor to the rapture. So, what this does is it makes the church, Gentile church, again, there's a huge, because the futurist is predominantly dispensational. So, it makes the church focus on this event. We're looking for signs in order to be clear when Jesus comes back and raptures the church out. Then he starts his dealings with Israel in Revelation 4 through 19, while we're not even here. What does that do for Revelation for you and I? Makes it irrelevant. So what we focus on is this. We are looking for the signs of the times, and what we end up doing or what futurists end up doing is drawing, again, what historicists do is they draw current event parallels. Well, who do you think the Antichrist is going to be? Oh, did you hear about all the, uh, the earthquakes and wherever? Oh, the tsunamis and all of this stuff. All are pointing to the end. And they may very well be. I'm not saying that they're not. But what that tends to do is our focus is not on the whole point of Revelation. Our focus is on signs of the times and trying to fit what's going on around us into the book, and we interpret the book according to the signs of the times. How should you interpret Revelation? 
by Scripture. And this completely takes the idea of interpreting out. Instead of understanding Revelation to speak back to the New Testament or the Old Testament, futurists often take the Old Testament and force it into the, to, to this time period. Matthew 24, Jesus actually is answering three questions. And so that's where everything gets confused for many people because he does speak about what's going to happen at the very end. And so there are some hints as to what's going to be taking place on the earth at the end before he returns. But it is not connected to the rapture in the sense of this futurist understanding. And we'll talk about that here in a second when we talk about idealism. Yes. Uh, let me look real quick. I might have thrown those in my notes. Uh, my question was for the different interpretations. When did those interpretations uh, arrive on the scene? Okay, I don't. And have, who were the authors? I don't have specific authors. It's very difficult to know who authors are with regards to this because they didn't generate in, really from any one person. Mostly, I will tell you this: Praetorists have gone back as far as I can tell to the 16th century, back to the time of 1600s, back to the time of the Reformation. All right. So at least I know that there's writings concerning praetorism that far back. Historicism, as far as I can tell, goes all the way back to the early church fathers. It is, but we haven't gotten to that yet, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're confusing it. Um, uh, futurism is predominantly... Premillennial dispensationalists. And so when I talked about dispensationalism, when did that start? The late 1800s. So futurism is primarily a newcomer to the scene, being specifically dispensational. All right? And the last one, everybody good with this? I'm about to erase it. And. The last one is called idealism, or iter iterism is another word. Um, and there's another one that it's called, and I can't remember right off the top of my head. Futurism is called... All right, well, I'll just... Oh, that's futurism, no wonder... Idealism, some, sometimes called iterism or recapitulationism. Why? Yeah, most of you probably have not heard of this. But I will tell you this. This is the predominant view of the church. As far back as prior to Augustine. Okay? As a matter of fact, it is the predominant view of the Christian church worldwide. And has been for as long as there's been history of the church. We don't hear about this in North America because we are saturated. I can tell you why this, the saturation occurred. But we are saturated with premillennial dispensationalism in America. Saturated by it. The original intent of the way that premillennialists understand the Bible was a safeguard against liberal theology. They built colleges to, to do this. They, they interpreted their scriptures to do this in, in order to safeguard against liberal and what they call modernistic theology impinging upon historical orthodoxy. So they went to a, an extreme literal interpretation of the Bible. That's where dispensationalism comes from. Okay? So you have colleges all over North America that are dispensationalists. Biola is dispensational. Moody Press, dispensational. The, most of the Assembly of God, Church of Christ, all of those colleges, many Baptists are dispensational. They're, I'm sorry? 
Calvary Chapel, all over America. So you have a great influence of dispensationalism in North America. It's the newcomer to the scene, and most people have no idea about the history of this. They just hear it from their churches, and it's gospel. That's why to say anything about the church being the inclusion of the Gentiles and the extension of the nation or, or the Israel, the remnant of Israel from the Old Testament is likened unto heresy. Because they actually said and they've actually taught throughout dispensational teaching that to differ or to understand things typologically is in fact heretical. Okay, so this is why this is so hard to pry out of people. Because they've been taught that this is, if you think anything but this, you, you're thinking heresy. All right? So there's your understanding of the, the influence of dispensationalism. And I would suggest that most of you here have grown up with it to a very, very large degree. Idealism. I'm going to take some time on this one because this is what we hold to. This is going to be helpful when Rick starts teaching the actual texts, which is soon coming for those of you that are getting anxious. I'm sorry, first Advent, let's do it this way. Okay, so far we've seen different interpretations. Idealism is sometimes called recapitulationism because it interprets revelations, listen to this, this is important. It interprets revelation as a series of repeated symbolic pictures of the church's struggle from the ascension to the second coming. It's a recurring picture of one struggle. And I'm going to say this so you can understand. The bowls, the trumpets, is it wo woes, trumpets, and bowls, right, are understood to be the same series of events viewed from different angles. They're not chronological. They don't, you don't have the first bowl and then you wait for the second and then the third. What they are is they are things that happen and that are poured out during this time frame, during the struggle between God and as he takes back control of his creation, as he subjects all things under his feet. These are the wrath, these are the various wraths or the manifestation of God's wrath, and they're viewed from different angles. And if you line them up, if you draw out the trumpets, the bowls, and the woes, you can see, oh, that has to do with destroying the grass. Oh, so does that. Oh, so does that. You can actually draw lines to show that most of them line up. This is recapitulationism or idealism. All right, so what I just said is, I'll just say it in condensed form. Revelation gives multiple images that provide different perspectives on the same warfare. Sometimes in terms of behind-the-scene heavenly sources or pictures, and at others in terms of their visibly earth, visible earthly manifestations. So sometimes you're viewing things from the throne room, and then you'll see the same event as it's being played out in the earth. Okay, so it's not sequential, and it's very symbolic, and it covers this entire timeline. Now, just that alone should give you indication that this means that Revelation is pertinent to every Christian throughout the entire church age at the same intensity. That's why this is one of the this is the preferred method because it is actually applicable. And when you understand that all Scripture is profitable, you have to understand that that means for every Christian that has lived during the church age. Yes. So how can we fit Revelation into one little end and then relegate its 
uh, or diminish its importance to a, a, a nation that doesn't even believe in the Messiah. Makes you scratch your head a little bit, huh? So, idealism. All right. Oh, jumps ahead right here. Question is, where's the millennium? It's the same place as, it's interadvental. It's the church age. All right. Um, idealism does not attempt to interpret the specific visions or features within the, within the visions with specific realities. So it doesn't try to identify who's the Antichrist. Why? Because there have been many. Because it's the spirit of Antichrist. What is that? Anything that opposes the purposes and plans of God. How many can you, under, can you read? I mean, there's even stuff in the Old Testament. Nimrod. King of Tyre. Just to name a couple. King of Babylon. Perhaps even Jezebel. I've never heard that before, but interesting. So what you have is you have this recurring theme. And what does this recurring theme surround? The warfare and the struggle of the church throughout the church age as it, does, as it fulfills the Great Commission in propagating the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what Revelation is about. That's why it's very important for us to understand it in this term because it makes it relevant and applicable to us today. That makes sense? Okay. Now I could go on and on and on and on and on as I have been known to do. But let me just say this. Idealism pays careful attention to all that Revelation reveals in that it does not hold to the interpretation that history will go on normally until Jesus returns it understands that Revelation presents a more complex picture. What is that picture? That the kingdom of God advances through the church's witness amid suffering. That just before the end, that conflict is intensified and coordinated. Um, well, let me read it a different way. And then just before the end, the intensified and coordinated hostility of the non-Christian world against the church is made manifest. So... It kind of swells, if you will. That goes back to the Matthew 24 notion that there will be things that get worse. How many of you can see this going on right now in the world? The coordinated effort, a coordinated global effort against the effort uh, against the, the propagation of the gospel. Do you see that right now? I mean, it's in France. How many churches were vandalized last week? 30-something churches in France. It was a coordinated attack against the Christian church. How many people in Africa over the last two weeks were m murdered by Muslims? 135 last week. Whole village slaughtered. We have no idea what's going on in China, but we do know that the, this is a coordinated global attack against Christendom. The media will berate Christianity for its anti-LGBT position and praise the Muslims who throw homosexuals off roofs. Where is that logic coming from? And in these last days there will be a delusion and they will believe a lie. And we're seeing it. Okay, We're living in the middle of it. All right? All right. I'm going to just give you these. Reasons why we prefer this interpretation. Number one, Revelation is addressed to his servants, thereby including all Christians in all locations at all times. And it transcends nationalistic boundaries. That means there's not a section that's Jewish and a section that's Gentile. 
the seven churches in chapters 2 through 3 stand for the whole church throughout the age, the church age. The number seven is symbolically, symbolically represents completeness. Now, you will understand that as we go through Revelation that there is a symbolic emphasis on numbers. It's not hocus pocus. There's a reason why Jesus drove 12 disciples. There's a reason why there are 12 tribes of Israel. It's not a random number. 12 represents, in God's economy, perfect administration. Okay? Seven represents, in prophetic language, whole or complete. Okay? So a thousand years, that's another big one. Ten times ten times ten. That particular equation, ten times ten times ten, is understood to be God's perfect, uh, God's perfect economy in dispensing uh, uh, his plan of salvation. That's why we understand the thousand years to be the entire timeline of redemptive history, of church history. All right, because it has to do a lot with that. So, well, it has that that supports it. Doesn't have a lot to do with it. All right. The phrase at the end of every message to the seven churches is what? What is the last phrase that 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 is said to each of the churches? To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Isn't that what's said? Necessarily, then, that means that each message was intended for all believers. He who has an ear, let him hear what's said to the churches. Not he who has an ear in the church, let him hear what I'm saying to them. See the difference? All right. So, uh, Revelation 1, 1 and 4, 1 indicate that the contents contain the unfolding of the period of last things. And when is the last things? When were the last things inaugurated? When did Paul say we are living in the last days? When did Peter say we were living in the last days? When did John say? At Pentecost. John says we know that we are in the last days because there is Antichrist now. Right? Paul said we are in the last days. In these last days. So if the scripture says... That revelation, that revelation is the contents contain. Uh, that that revelation itself says that what's contained in revelation is the unfolding of the period of the last things. Then we have to draw what last things means from what Scripture says, and we understand that we were in the last days with the last things happening from the time of Christ. All right, and the last thing is that Paul tells us, and I've already said this in Second Timothy, that all Scripture is profitable. These visions then must generalize beyond the particular circumstances of the first century, which is praetorism, and of those of the final crisis, which is futurism. So, by what Scripture itself says, we negate praetorism, we negate futurism, and historicism will negate itself. Okay? Any questions on that particular topic? We are idealists or iterists, <laughs> if, you, if you like that word better. Recapitulationists. But that's what we hold to, all right? Because we understand Revelation to be a picture of the ongoing struggle of the church against the forces of evil as it takes the gospel of Christ to all nations. That's how we understand Revelation. And I demystified it for so many people right, just right there. Darn. All right? Everybody good with this? Yes, Bob. Mike. That's not his name. Bob wants the mic. Um, yeah, my question is, it seems like uh, preterism and... Um uh, the idealism are pretty much the same up to the second coming. Is that 
Is that reasonable? No. Preterism, uh, it, it understands Revelation to Revelation 19. Except for the millennial period. No. Uh, they understand that, that preterists understand that all things with regards to the symbolic uh, visions are, have already happened. There is nothing more. We wait for nothing. Yeah, 70, 80, or, or 5th century, depending on who you read. So from the 5th, let's just say from 70 AD, because that's the most popular. From 70 AD until the second coming, Revelation has nothing to say to us. It's all done. What we're waiting for is Revelation 20. That's, that's what the church is waiting for. So, um, so if I may ask another question. Sure. Uh, back to preterism. If everything uh, in Revelation up through 19 ended with the fall of Rome or Jerusalem, whichever, what about the period after the fall up into the second coming? There's a huge period of time. That's right. <laughs> that's, just a, that's just a gray period in the book of Revelation for, for prophetic fulfillment. There's nothing going on during that time period that Revelation speaks to. That post-millennialism says it's getting better. And so a lot of people will apply post-millennialism to praetorism, and they'll say, okay, well, all this prophetic stuff stopped at 70 A.D., and now the church has taken over, and we're moving toward the golden age, which I'm using terms right now that we haven't explained. But I'm about to. Okay? So let's jump ahead. I'm going to be able, I'm going to try and get done with this next week so that... Um, once we, we get done with millennialism, we are into Revelation 1-1. Anybody? So, millennium. What is the millennium? Everybody has heard about this. If you are a pre, if you are a dispensationalist and you've been raised in dispensational thought, you've heard this term. What is it? Thousand-year reign of Christ. Where does it come from? Where do we come up with this all-encompassing, <laughs> seven verses actually, uh, but seven verses in Revelation. Revelation 21 through, some say seven, some say 11, depending on, again, who you read. So in one verse, one section of Scripture has done more to impact the way that people understand eschatology than anything else. Why is that the case? Well, we'll figure it out. It's a, it's a complicated answer, but we'll figure it out. All right, anybody want to? So when you have time, I won't do it right now. Go read Revelations 21 through 7. The term millennium is a Latin word that is the equivalent of two Greek words uh, used six times. Six times in Revelation 20. The term simply means a thousand years. There's another term that you may, if you do reading, uh, if you read a lot, uh, that you'll come across called kiliism. And it's basically the Latin word, or the, it's basically, uh, yeah, the Latin word of the, uh, the Latin equivalent of the Greek word. However, kiliism, and you have to understand that, that the, there's a difference. Millennium means 1,000 years. Kiliism was a derogatory term used by the, especially the Reformation, and they called people kiliists. It wasn't a flattering statement, but they understood that they were looking for a golden period within the church age. Okay? And that speaks to post-millennialism. We'll get to that in a second. So real quick, an overview. In Revelation 20, the millennium denotes a thousand-year period in which Christ reigns on the earth subsequent to binding. That's important. Subsequent to binding Satan. The generally held understanding of the millennial reign is that Christ returns binds Satan and begins a 1,000-year reign on the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Have all things been made new in that millennium? 
No. What still is going on in the millennium? Sin, death, birth, families, rebellion. Just so that you know, I'm going to jump way ahead. That particular viewpoint has no scriptural support. None. The scripture is very clear that at the second coming of Christ, all things are made new. That is the scriptural precedent. Nowhere in scripture is, does it talk about a rapture. That is an um, uh, implicit or it's, it is implicitly derived by usually the latter verses of Matthew 24. 1 Thessalonians is generally tied back to Matthew, the end of Matthew 24, which actually says at the end, after the, after the tribulation of these days, which if you really read it, will blow a hole in, in premillennial thought. So compare when you have some time, just for fun, Compare 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to the last verses of Matthew 24. After the tribulation of those days, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather the the elect from the east and from the west. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and blah, blah, blah. And then they will be caught up into the clouds. That's Revelation 20. That sounds exactly like 1 Thessalonians. That sounds exactly like it. So how come we come up with two different comings that are described in the exact same way? I'll challenge you to read that. I'll challenge you to make a comparison. They are exactly the same event. And the reason that that's important to understand is because Matthew 24, Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days. Pre-tribulationists understand 1 Thessalonians to be before the tribulation of those days. But if it's the same event, Jesus clearly says, no, no, no. It says after the tribulation of those days. So the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is actually blown apart by the, the scriptures that they use to support it. Okay? Any questions on that? <laughs> Can I tell you the scriptural references of what? First Thessalonians 4. Uh, it's kind of a long, I think it's 1 through like 15, something like that. Maybe it's not 1. 13 through... 13 through 18. And Matthew 24, and I think it starts at 32. I'm really stretching my brain on that one. After the tribulation of those days, there will be signs in the stars moon. Now, how many of you believe that in the last days the moon will turn into blood? And the sun will become as dark as sackcloth. How many of you believe that? How many of you understand that symbolically anything that's referencing celestial, celestial entities like the stars has to do with governmental powers? Ah. We'll get to some of that when we go through Revelation. Yes. Okay, well, now we're into Christology and incarnation, and she wants to know how the Father and the Son, who are one, uh, and who should know all things, how come the Son didn't know the times that, that only the Father knew, according to Revelation, uh, Matthew 24. That is a long dialogue. Um, that has a lot to do with incarnation and two natures of Christ and that is a lot that has to do with Christology. Okay, so Rick would love to answer that question for you after, after, after class. 
Um, in my simpleness, I always thought that the red blood moon was the, uh, and the uh, dark sun was just the description of eclipses. Yeah. You know, and that happens a lot. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to jump into the different symbol, symbol, uh, symbology right now, but predominantly throughout Scripture, when you're talking about prophetic language, especially in the Old Testament, signs in the, in the stars had to do with shifting political power. Okay? And that's because we don't understand Revelation in light of Old Testament understanding. We just kind of just set it off out there as its own and we read it as some kind of science fiction novel and off we go. Iterism or idealism requires that you understand Revelation in terms of the entire scripture and the narrative of God's salvific plan. Requires that you understand it. Which is the way you should read Revelation. Which is the way you should read any book of the Bible. Okay? So, those are important things. All right. Uh, it is also important to note that Revelation 20 is the only passage of Scripture that speaks of a thousand-year reign. It's the only one. When we speak, then, of millennial views, we are referring to the differing interpretations of a thousand-year period. This is an example of why your hermeneutic is so important. Here are the questions that you need to ask. Does this describe a future period during which Christ will reign in a way that is different from the way he currently reigns at the Father's right hand? Most people say yes. Most people say yes. How many of you believe right now that Christ reigns? Better raise your hand. Every one of you better raise your hand. Scripture is clear, and he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Book of Acts is a, to a story of Christ reigning from his ascended position over the affairs of the church. That is what the book of Acts is about, and we're going through it right now. And if you read the book of Acts, it's a little picture of Revelation. Their struggles and their, the things that arrayed themselves against them and all of the different things that go on in Acts is what Revelation is about. It's about the advancing of the gospel in the face of opposition. Now where Revelation extends from Acts is that Revelation brings us to the conclusion where we go back to Genesis 3 and Lucifer's or Leviathan's head is crushed. So it is the entire narrative of Scripture. Acts is a small snippet of what it looks like to live in the millennial reign of Christ. Okay? All right, when we speak then of millennial views, oh, okay, so uh, what, what is described, uh, does it describe the millennial, does it describe a circumstance that is presently realized and characterizes Christ's reign from heaven uh, between his first and second coming? That's a question. Does it mean that to you? I want you guys to think about that this week. What does the millennium mean to you? What do you think it means? Third, what is the nature of Christ's millennial reign? What does it look like? Kevin gave us an, a, a statement. The word is bodily. This is how uh, premillennial dispensationalists make a difference between what Christ is doing now and what he will do in the millennium. Because they take Zechariah, where he comes down, he puts his feet on the mountain and splits it in two, and then take Revelation that out of, the, out of the heaven will come the new Jerusalem, and they say that Christ will set up a earthly, physical kingdom on the earth and rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. That is the millennial thought. So bodily is an important understanding. So you have to think, is it going to be, is that what is meant by, the, by uh, the millennial concept in Revelation 20? Does it imply a bodily reigning? All right? 
Will it be a period of a little, literal 1,000 years? And uh, you may think that that's a silly statement, but I will tell you what, men wrestle over this. Oh, my goodness. There have been books written on this. Or does the word refer to a protracted period in redemptive history when the reign of Christ will almost universally be acknowledged by the nations of the earth? What does it mean? Those are things that we have to get over because they will all affect the way we understand Revelation. Time is it? I got to stop. Let me just finish up with this small thing, statement here, and then next week we'll jump into the actual millennial views, and I'll do all four of them in one class. And then I'll leave it to Rick to sort it out. Um, there are two views, four versions. Okay? Two views, four versions. The first one, the best, uh, the, the best way to identify and classify these views is in relation to the, re the return of Christ since all millennial views place the millennium either before or after that event, okay? So all millennial views have to do with the return of Christ. It's either before or after. Where's the millennium? Accordingly, there are two uh, major types of millennial positions. Premillennial, Christ comes before the millennium, or postmillennial, Christ comes after the millennium. All millennialists are, in fact, postmillennialists. Within the premillennial position, there are two, two, private, two, two primary versions. There's historic premillennialism, which doesn't typically make a distinction between the church and Israel. And then there's dispensational premillennialism, which does. Under postmillennial views, there is the postmillennialists. And then there's the amillennial position. And I'll just say this in closing, that amillennial is a terrible word because it means no millennium. And other authors have suggested that we realize, that we, that we use terms like realized millennium or inaugurated millennium or things like that. The problem is, is that it's been called amillennialism for as long as I can remember. And it's going to be really difficult to change the moniker. Amillennialists are not no millennium. We just understand it differently. And we are not Kiliists. Uh, we don't look for a golden age within the millennium. Okay? All right. Now, I know you guys have a ton of questions, but I have to stop. Um, we can attend to questions next week if you want to. But next week, we'll go through the four millennial views. Um, I would gather, uh, venture to say that a lot of us are pre-millennial in our understanding. I hope by the end of my teaching next week that you will be post-millennial, amillennialists. Okay? Father, thank you for the, what you have done and what you are doing in the world. That we are privileged to live in these latter days. We anticipate, Father, your return, uh, the return of your son. We look forward to it. We say, even so come, Lord Jesus. But while we yet remain, we also parrot the, the, the prayer and acts. Empower your servants to preach the gospel with boldness in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name, amen.